Welcome back to About Learning. I know it's been a while since the last episode. I'm sorry for the delay. I've been distracted by trying to figure out my own future, and I will, at some point soon, let you know how that's going. If you liked that episode we did last year with Zoe, where we look forward to her teaching career and back at the episodes I've done so far, get excited. We're going to be doing another one of those soon, where idealistic young Zoe will be able to tell us what it was actually like to train as a teacher in the English school system. And we'll talk about both of our futures and the future of the podcast itself. Today I speak to Rosalind Spencer, author of Why I Started a Small School, a book about, well, it's in the name. Rosalind started a small, independent school in the 1990s that was free to attend. We talk about why she did that, how she managed it, and what we can take away from her experience. We also touch upon the idea of human-scale education. The idea that schools should operate on a smaller scale through human relationships rather than institutional rules. At the end of the episode, I'll reflect on whether human scale is a good way of packaging the disparate array of difficulties that we have in education. Enjoy the show. Hi, Rosalind, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Stan, and thank you for contacting me and asking me to be part of your podcast. It's great to speak to you because I read your book recently. In fact, I was on the plane and I absolutely raced through why I started a small school, which is your book about starting a school. Um, I'm just going to read something from the back of the book and then hopefully we'll get into some, some of the details around how you came to start a school. So it says... Rosalind Spencer was shocked when she received a letter indicating that her son's difficulties in school were more likely to be the result of her parenting skills and life at home rather than having anything to do with the way he was being educated. Driven by the desire to help her son and in an effort to help others in a similar situation, she was determined to find a solution. After months of hard work, a new parent-run school opened for children aged between 4 and 11 years. This is the amazing true story of what Rosalind achieved and how that dreadful letter was proved to be totally and utterly wrong. So that's uh, why I started a small school and it is a really great read for anyone out there who's interested. Rosalind, how did you come then to start a new school? Well, there were four reasons, Stan. The first one, and you've, come, you've mentioned this already on the back of my book, my son was very unhappy. He was fine in the nursery environment, and when he was in the nursery, he loved books. He used to adore books. But when he started school, he grew to hate books more and more, and I knew he was having difficulties with his reading and his writing. By the time he was in year three, I'd gone to some seminars on dyslexia, and I was absolutely certain that he met all the criteria, and I think they thought I was wasting their time, but... I did say, could I please have him assessed so he can get the extra support? And eventually they agreed to the assessment. And then the letter I received from an educational psychologist was so devastating because it said that my son was definitely not dyslexic, but that he was an anxious child and that this was probably due to things that were happening in the home, which... Yeah. <laughs> anyway, a second reason was that I've been running a children's nursery since Dan was quite young. And 
I'd found over the years that parents kept coming back to me and saying that their children were really happy in the nursery and they loved coming to nursery every day. But when they started full-time schooling, they were really very upset. Some children started wetting the bed, some children were scared, some children didn't feel they were recognised as individuals. And the children that were sort of ahead of their peers by learning to read and write quite early felt they were being held back. And then at the other extreme, we had children like a little girl whose birthday was the 31st of August. And she started school the day after her fourth birthday, and she wasn't ready for copying writing off the blackboard, which she was being made to do, and then she was punished because she couldn't do it fast enough. Then the next reason was that my daughter had just missed going to school with all her friends. She'd been reading and writing herself since she was about three. She was quite a natural learner. And I thought she was going to face the same problems as any other children that had gone to school being able to read and write and being held back. And while I was worrying about all of this, I came across an organisation called Human Scale Education. And one day I received a newsletter from them that said, hope for small schools at last. I was so interested in this, I phoned up Human Scale Education and was invited to a two-day workshop in London, which I went to the next month. And then... That was it. And within a year, we had a small school set up. Amazing. How did you begin to decide on the values of your new school, for example? Well, I'd be really impressed with the philosophy of human scale education when I attended the workshop. That human scale education relationships are founded on mutual respect and care for others and for the environment, that each person is valued equally and that there are greater opportunities for encouraging self-discipline and building up self-confidence, self-reliance and capability, and that education should be a partnership between learner and teacher, and learner and the community, teacher and parent, and between the learners themselves. It's a really interesting angle. Human-scale education relationships, everyone's valued equally. Building your own self-discipline and self-confidence, and then also education as a partnership, I guess when you say them, they sound kind of obvious, but most schools are sort of run along the lines of discipline, academic attainment and realising potential. So this is quite a different emphasis from the mainstream. And the the way your school was funded was very different from the mainstream too. Uh, but you explain in your book that there was no way of getting state funding for the small school you wanted to set up. Um, but you had got someone to give you some seed money and you had reason to believe that the state funding picture was about to change. Uh, so there was some legislation going through Parliament proposing that state funding for education could follow each child, which would allow parent-run small schools to receive that state funding, a bit like uh, they have in Denmark, where they have free schoolers. Uh, parents can choose how the school is run, but they're mostly funded by the government. So you were hanging on in there, really, hoping that things were going to change. And of course, you had lower costs than a usual school. You were able to pay your teachers less because they agreed with your ethos. Perhaps part of the, partly they wanted to get away from the mainstream system. So you, presumably the parents were aware that your new school was somewhat in a, in a financially difficult situation. What did you tell them about the funding? And, and was that a discussion that you had with the parents? Yeah, at the earlier meetings, we'd, we'd talked about you know, whether there were going to be any fees or not. And as I say, the human scale principles are that the school shouldn't be fee paying. But I did have 
I'd say about half the audience were actually saying they wanted to pay fees, but they were the mm. parents that could afford to pay the fees. And it just didn't sit comfortably with me at all. And I thought that is, is just making it no different. Why did they want to pay fees? For financial security, one of them was saying, well, it's okay, you're wanting to do this and we can see that you've got the energy to do this. But what happens if something happens to you? You know, what's going to happen to the school? And it needs to be financially secure if they wanted to put their children in the school. You know, some parents were saying they would like it to be a long-term commitment to the school and by not charging fees, there just wasn't that security. And there was sort of a circular argument going on, right? So human-scale education wanted more small schools to, to exist so they could make the case to the government to start funding them or part funding them. So I guess, were you were you hoping that while your school was open, the government would sort of come in with an offer of funding? Yeah, I was definitely hoping that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also with the news that I had about the small school in Heart and Devon with the funding that they'd got, I, I just thought, yes, they just went into it with hope. And that's yeah. what, you know, I went into it with the same thing. If, if somebody else could make it work. I've got to say, in your book, it really comes through the optimism in everything you do. It's sort of just ploughing on in the face of possible catastrophe. Uh, you just sort of carry on, you know, hoping that it's all going to go okay. And I think the things you achieve in setting up this school are pretty impressive. Um, so after you, you did this workshop with HSE and you started talking to the parents, I mean, how long was it between then and opening the school? We had the school running in less than a year. After those first two public meetings, we set up a steering group, uh, a financial group, a parents group, and then later a Saturday morning club so that the children could get to know each other. After many months, we just raised £1,500. So my, my original hope had been to raise enough money to pay for a teacher so that I could carry on running the nursery. But it just wasn't to be, and it, it looked like the school was in no position to open so I had the pretty crazy idea to say I'd run the school for nothing and we didn't have premises which I'd hoped for so I thought well I can reorganize the nursery we'd actually just finished because the nursery was running my home we'd we'd bought an old Victorian house and we decided to use a double garage to put all the rumpus room equipment in and then we could free up that room to have a classroom. This is all very inspiring in a way, because you, make, you pull out all the stops to make this school happen. But it's also kind of scary. I mean, for parents out there who are in a similar situation to the one you were in, where they, they're not satisfied with their child's education, you're basically saying you reorganised your life to make this school happen, and you relied on a lot of people's uh, sort of generosity and goodwill to, to keep it running. Um, did you ever reach a place of sort of financial stability as a school? Within just a few weeks of opening, I got a letter, tray opened, and it was a cheque for £10,000. And that was just amazing. That was the, the first successful trust fund um, donation that we'd had. And we were promised another £10,000 the following year. Uh, another piece of amazing news... We were not sure how we were going to afford this anyway, but we, we just thought maybe by having a new building that might help. It's unbelievably, a benefactor who wanted to stay anonymous bought a building for us that had just come up. It was um, an old 
school building that had been built by the Earl of Beverley in 1834. Yes. <laughs> and the, the school was on the banks of the River Rare and it was in such a, a beautiful setting. It, it, it was lovely. It was perfect for us. So you had a bit more funding. You got a £10,000 grant. You've got a, a special building that's all yours. Um, amazing. In the day-to-day running of the school then, uh, did you involve the parents? The parents got involved in any way that they could. We, Some parents were working full-time and they contributed more voluntarily to, to the school. Some parents, like one parent had no money at all. She was she was single with a child at our school and a, and a younger child. And she offered to come in and do the cleaning every night. Her mum would look after the little one and she'd come and do the cleaning. And um, that worked quite well although some days that she couldn't quite make it. But we we found out that, um, we found out what the skills were of the parents. And uh, one parent who was very, very shy found out that she was a sculptor and she she was excellent with her sculpting skills. And so with a bit of encouragement, we got her to sit with a group of just three or four children for a sculpting activity. Another parent was good at um, crafts and she brought in a spinning wheel from home and helped the children spin wool and uh, uh, one of the dads was an artist and so he'd do sketching classes up on the riverbank with the children we well all the parents were police checked um, it wasn't quite the same system it is now but they all had the, the, the it was a list 99 check and also we offered training to parents because I had training in place for the children's nursery staff we uh, let parents from the school attend training sessions as well for first aid for all sorts of other things like you know helping children with reading language development playtime activities and we were working towards investors in people we were already, already doing that at the nursery and we decided to do that with parents that wanted to get qualifications as well. So the parents were working towards NVQ qualifications in childcare. So your parents were heavily involved really in the school. So you started off running a small school, then you started home educating and you were went on a tour of lots of small schools around the UK. Um, what are your thoughts on small schools now? Um, and isn't it easier than ever to open a state-funded small school now that uh, the government allows parents to open what it calls free schools? Yes, yeah, so when the free schools first came out, um, because the government's first 24 free schools opened in September t- 2011, but it just doesn't fit in with human scale criteria because... The, the criteria that you have to meet is that you have to open two classes of children, with, you know, two classes with 30 children in, in each year group, and they expect you to find 60 children to open the school with, the year seven children, and then the school grows year by year with a new year seven intake until the school is full. And this was causing lots of problems in that in some areas, free schools were being set up and mainstream schools nearby were left struggling for pupil numbers and they faced possible closure and some had closed as a result of that. There are some free schools that try to run along human scale values, but they're not the small school 
values. So they're they're different to the the small school values, which um, is you know getting to know each individual child and trying to meet their individual needs. So essentially, essentially, the government said we'll fund new schools, but they have to have at least. 60 children in each year group so they're never going to live up to this kind of small school ethos that you were a big proponent of yes there are some very good ones like there's the xp school in doncaster which tries to be very keen on relationships so that's got human scale values in that respect but they're very different to the small school values and there are some children that just can't cope in larger schools and larger settings. Yeah, I mean, even the school that I'm working in now, School 21, that's a free school. It's not it's not small. It's got about 70 children in a year group. But it's split into what we call small schools. So it's got like a primary area, a middle school area, secondary area, and a sixth form area. They all have their own physical space within the school. So it, the, the goal, I think, is to make what is essentially a normal-sized school feel like a small one in that you've got your own area you've got the teachers who are local to that part of the school um, and I think to some extent it works I think that my the school 21 is more personal than your average big comprehensive school and I think you can see that some examples of that is um, you know we've got some children with really severe special educational needs who I don't think would get by in any other school other than perhaps a special school we've had for example we've had a child who's basically mute um, couldn't write, um, couldn't speak. So I can't imagine how how that person, how that child would get on in a school where there's 2,000 kids and there's, there's 300 kids in a year group. I think School 21 is doing better than most with its effort to keep things small, but I suspect it's still not small enough. You know, it's still big enough school so that not all the teachers know each other, the students don't know everyone's name, and and things have to be largely rule-based which makes it feel like any old school sometimes. Yeah. I must confess there were so many advantages to the small school and it was like being part of a bigger family. And there was equality between the teachers and the parents, you know, and, and the children until maybe the last year was more difficult because there were more funding struggles and with having more children from outside the setting, secondary age pupils, that made it more difficult. But the first two years it, it was you know, a, a, a nice big happy family for much of the time. I think there's really there's really not enough talk about scale when it comes to education. I don't think scale is something people think about. When you really do think about it, you realise that most state schools operate on this ethos of bigger is better. You know, large schools can have more facilities. They can have sports facilities, science labs. They can have specialist teachers in every subject. They can have more, they can use administrative staff more efficiently. Uh, when people are absent, they can cover them more effectively. So, like there are, I suppose there are well documented reasons to have schools that are big, but we we don't think about the other side. I mean, large schools are anonymous. People don't know everyone around them in the school. You know, teachers have to rely on rules to maintain order, not the relationships they have with the students. They've got to have these sort of in personal protocols to make things work you know i can imagine that that bullying is more common in large schools and then of course parents are probably less willing when they're in when their child is in a big anonymous school parents are less willing to offer their time whereas in your school they could see the effect of everything they were doing they, were, they knew they were helping their own child as well as others um and of course with with big schools there's pressure at every level 
just to start seeing the children as, as statistics, as numbers. I mean, in my job now, I'm very frustrated by the way I have to spend my time. Um, you know, I've got to spend hours preparing an exam, then I've got to mark the exam papers, I've got to analyse the results, I've got to plan the lessons that teachers are going to use to give feedback to the students on the exam. And at the very bottom of my list of priorities is actually spending time with my students, with seeing how they're doing, you know, figuring out how, where each individual is and what I can do to help them improve. Um, so the insidious effects of scale are that institutions become about fulfilling some some job macro job rather than nurturing people um so it's kind of it is kind of depressing to see that free schools which which is basically a mechanism the government set up so that parents and other people can set up schools the way they want them these free schools are essentially capped at a minimum size of 300 so there really is a limit on how experimental these schools could could be you were talking there about nurturing um, human scale schools are very much based on the principle of nurturing, um, which I know you're saying you're trying to do, your school is trying to do in a bigger environment. Yeah. But I believe it is so much easier to get the nurturing in a smaller setting when you can really get to know the individuals and their families and, as I say, be a, a team working together. Um, but when I was running a nurture group uh, a number of years ago, the, the government were putting a lot of money into nurture groups, which was children that were in a mainstream school but weren't thriving in their own class. They spent time out in, in a nurture group because the research showed that if you can nurture these children and meet their social, personal and emotional needs, they're going to be, it's going to be much more cost effective further down the road because it's going to prevent problems further down the line. You know, all the money that's put into, you know, boosting reading levels and learning support and also it's looking at other issues because I spent nine years as the parenting coordinator of the Lincolnshire Youth Offending Service and I could see definite links with schools not meeting the needs of individual children or children being bullied leading to poor behaviour and deviant behaviour and I found that the parents were often blamed, just as I was blamed for, <laughs> for my son's insecurities. But parents are often blamed if they've got children with deviant behaviour, but I could see it very differently. And I, I could see that nearly all the children, I was, I was working with the parents of them, but listening to the parents, and they were trying to say to the school that their children had got difficulties and they were trying to get help. And whereas sometimes they got help at primary school levels and they found that because that was smaller and they did get more support from the class teacher. So many children, when they moved from primary to secondary, just fell through the gaps. They didn't know the teachers. They, you know, but that is often when the problem started for the children that became involved with the youth offending service. But I, I used to think it wasn't fully recognised the part the school played in the behaviour of these children. Yeah. Um, and I, I just wish the government could see that if they could fund small schools, the way that they funded nurture groups 20 years ago, they put well, so much money into that. But if they could fund small schools, they'd be saving a fortune because it is almost like an early intervention to prevent mm. mental health issues that we've, we've got so many of today. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful point, the idea that having nurturing environments isn't just kind and a nice thing to do it's an investment in the child and if school isn't nurturing so say 
if the teachers of a nine or ten year old are putting all their efforts towards getting the child to pass the SATs test, they're neglecting their nurturing role. And fine, they might they might push their mm-hmm. child, they might push that student over the line and, and get them to get a level five on the test or whatever. But you're neglecting them in some sense, and it's going to lead to problems further down the line. Really, I, I think the valuable lesson is that, um, you know, if children can attend a small school that's well run, you know, they can see the benefits for for their own children. And yeah, hopefully, if there are more caring schools for the future, we can have more rounded, well-rounded adults contributing to society in the future. I certainly hope that happens. And that's a really nice positive note to end on, that we might be at the start of a a renaissance time for small schools uh, and that people might be starting to open more schools of this type. I think it's worth mentioning one, uh, the new school in Croydon, which is kind of running along similar-ish lines to the school you started. You know, it's a small school. It's an independent school aiming to be non-fee-paying, except it's uh, made headlines for acquiring funding in the millions, not in the thousands. So maybe there's a future for the new school in London. I hope so. That was Rosalind Spencer. If you've ever wondered what it would be like to start your own school, I know I have, I'd recommend her book, Why I Started a Small School, which you can find on Amazon and probably some other places too. And if you're really interested, I'd direct you to a workshop that Rosalind, alongside two other giants in the field, is running in May 2022 about how to set up a small school. You can find a link to that in the description. I realise we never talked about what happened to Rosalind's school. Well, it closed after a few years due to lack of funding. In fact, of the 17 small schools that Rosalind visited in 1997, only three are open today, and they all charge fees. It's worth re-emphasising that while the British state provides an education to every child who needs it, it really only offers a large-scale model. Even if a small new school... Even if a small new school can prove that it's providing an exceptional education at a low cost, there's still no clear path to state funding. I enjoyed thinking about this idea of human-scale education, because it seems to encapsulate what's missing in the conveyor-belt systems of education that have become the norm. We're all familiar with the problems that education faces, the millions of young people suffering with anxiety and mental health difficulties, the widespread exam stress that seems to be robbing people of a carefree childhood. Our young people are leaving education without the soft skills and the drive that are essential for success in the workplace. Teachers are burning out. They feel like no matter how much they give to the job, it's just never enough. We're doing some things to address these problems, of course, but our efforts feel like patch-up jobs. We'll have a mental health awareness day or we'll give students a speech about how you need confidence and eloquence to thrive as an adult or we'll put up posters about well-being in the staff room. Always measures that seem to add to the list of teachers' responsibilities. It's getting out of hand and it's not effective. We should be looking for the source of the shortcomings. And maybe that's where human-scale education can help us. Maybe our commitment to economies of scale 
while it's a boon to administrators and accountants, has poisoned the well. Educating a child is a profound thing. You're taking a bundle of potential and hopefully helping them to thrive. So what made us think we could just come up with a template for education and apply it to each child? We're wired as social creatures, which means we exist not just as individuals, but as members of a community. We thrive off knowing the people around us. We're happy and we're comfortable when we trust our community and feel trusted in turn. So it's natural that we'd want schools where everyone knows and understands each other as individuals. The kind of places where an ID badge is superfluous, because we know each other by name. I'd like to explore this further that all of these problems that we put in separate boxes might have a common origin. And that by running things on a human scale, we might proactively prevent lots of problems down the line. It's enthralling. Next time, I'll be speaking to Tom Godfrey Fawcett. We'll be analysing and critiquing some of the ideas explored in this season of the podcast. I feel like I've been getting wistful recently, like we just need to set children free and let them do what they want all the time. So maybe Tom can help bring me back down to earth. This has been About Learning. I'm Stan Pinsent. See you next time.